0: This is the last episode of season one of The Eater Upsell. Season two will be coming out next spring. To make sure you get that season when it starts, please subscribe to the podcast. And as always, if you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. It's the best way to let us know that you are out there listening.
1: Greg, I have a question for you. Yes? Have you ever been to Waffle House?
0: I've never been to a Waffle House before.
1: I've also never been to a Waffle House Oh, before. really? Yeah.
0: I thought you were going to say like, okay, let me tell you about Waffle House.
1: No, I was actually kind of hoping you could tell me about Waffle House. No,
0: I feel like we have to get our foodie badges revoked now.
1: Today in the Eater Upsell studio, Greg and I are talking with Alton Brown.
0: You've probably seen this guy on TV if
1: you've lived and breathed over the last 15 years. He's super rad. It's going to be awesome. We're going to talk to him in just a minute. Well, that's the thing, right, is that everybody is obsessed with Waffle House.
0: Yeah, it's the high-end, low-end, you know, thing.
1: Well, it also, though, strikes me that it is the thing of people's childhoods. Right. If you grew up in a certain part of the United States. Mm-hmm. Like, I have a very deep emotional relationship to Denny's, mm-hmm. which arguably could be considered the Waffle House of the Midwest. Definitely. But I, I have to say, and the reason I brought it up is is the primary way in which I'm aware of Waffle House is not actually that all the food editors are super obsessed with it. The primary way I am aware of Waffle House is that a shocking number of crimes seem to occur there.
0: Oh, that is so true. There are tons of bizarre Waffle House crimes.
1: Yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, sometimes they're deeply tragic. Like a guy with a concealed weapon will recently shot his waitress because she asked him to stop smoking. Which is awful and not funny, but sometimes they're really funny. <laughs> like, and I think this is a product of it being a twenty-four-hour diner. But you read these things about you know bizarre fights over someone's shoelaces that happen at four in the morning in rural North Carolina at a Waffle House.
0: Yeah, I guess it must be these, these places must be hotbeds for the kind of things that only happen after people have been up all night, possibly drinking, possibly doing drugs, possibly doing Lord knows what.
1: Yeah, and you're not gonna do it in your living room, so you do it at Waffle House. Right, and i I guess it just never occurred to me that if I were gonna do something i mean, it makes tons of sense. It's a really good idea, sort of from a personal strategy perspective, like if you're gonna f- it up, take it to Waffle House
0: mhm- mhm i mean they're they're they seem to like they're always bright, very brightly lit.
1: They have waffles
0: they have waffles, you can also get like a burger. I mean, you can get like anything right It's like a yeah. a diner
1: but it it seems weird that crimes happen so frequently at restaurants like Waffle House. And I wonder if it happens more at these restaurants than it does in other places. Like, has there ever been some study that's been done that says like, look, if people want to commit sort of low grade meth related crimes, they're going to do it at a chain style diner. Right. Why, why is this happening?
0: I think it's the, I think it's the 24 hour thing and they're super inexpensive and they're kind of just these catch alls, you
1: know, have you ever committed a crime at a restaurant? (sighs)
0: Oh, No, I think when I was in high school or something, we might have stolen some tongs from a salad bar at, like, the Sizzler.
1: Oh, dude, that's hardcore. Yeah, core. we didn't
0: get caught or anything.
1: You're you're a fugitive.
0: Yeah, I know. Sorry, huh?
1: Whoa, dude, that's, that's major.
0: I don't know if I was the one that actually perpetrated the crime, but...
1: You were an accessory to tong uh, theft.
0: Yeah, I was so stupid.
1: I feel like you are a beautiful, innocent soul. Like when I was a teenager, my friends and I terrorized our local Denny's. Really? We once stole one of the actual coffee pots from the coffee pot machine in the waitress station. It was full of coffee. We took it, left the restaurant, and never returned it. Wow. I mean I mean that that's
0: that's that's pretty. serious. Yeah,
1: I know that was like a major theft. You
0: know, on the subject of Waffle House there's something I've definitely noticed and especially in talking to food writers and, and just kind of people in general is that people have these real ride or die relationships with certain chain restaurants. That they live. I mean, this is something that we've definitely explored on Eater.com. But what I find fascinating is when people have uh, – when foodies and chefs and people that really are obsessed with really high-end stuff, they have this allegiance to certain chain restaurants specifically because of the food even though you know it's not necessarily that unique or that special it's just like this nostalgic thing but it it transcends nostalgia to becoming this this thing of
1: it's yours it's yours it's It's proprietary it's like a sports team Mm
0: -hmm. like
1: what is your chain restaurant is like asking someone like who's your football team So we're here in the Eater Upsell Studio with the one and only Alton Brown.
2: My name is Alton Brown.
1: Alton, not Alton.
2: It's no, not Alton. I won't answer to that. Alton, <laughs> or I would start calling you Helan cool. and
0: there Grieg. Go. I'm gonna start calling you Helan. Helan. I'm call you Grieg. Grieg sounds kind of cool though. Yeah.
1: Helan's not so great. I had a, I had a science teacher in junior high who called me Hecken because he said you're not allowed to say hell. Oh. It took me
0: He really got a, he really left a lasting
1: impression there. Clever guy.
2: Can we make this a little bit more about me now? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, thanks, guys.
1: Elton is the author of 10 cookbooks. No,
2: that's, I don't know where they get that. I, I only count, I count seven. That come to mind right away. I'm working on my eighth. My eighth will be out next year. I'm, I'm on it right so now, where did but these, I'm pretty sure there's only seven.
1: Where did these three ghost cookbooks well, come from? Well, I think from? that they're
2: like, I think that people count sometimes things that I don't count. Like I did a, one of them was kind of like a cook's notebook that had all, but it wasn't a book. I don't, I, you know, and one of them was like an empty journal. I mean, I am like going to count that as a book. So no, seven. I'm pretty sure there are seven books because I'm working on number eight.
1: But arguably 10 book shaped objects that a person could buy.
2: I don't even know because I think that some of them aren't even in print anymore. Seven. Okay, I'm sticking seven. with seven.
1: Alton Brown, author of seven cookbooks with an go. eighth on the way, Absolutely. and also extremely longtime Food Network host, star director, mastermind.
2: Seventeen years.
1: Ninety nine. You had the first yes. Good Eats, right?
0: Yes. Seventeen years in Food Network years must be like. I don't know if it's years. fewer
2: or more. I, I don't. It's hard to say. I think it depends on your pay grade. Um, but the only person that's still there when, when I went there in 99, Bobby Flay was already there and Bobby Flay is still there. But other than that, we've, we've outlasted everybody.
1: Wow. And you will
0: outlast everybody. So if you see, that, if you see I'll Bobby say. at an event, you guys just nod like, We're the well, we bet we
2: have rings, you know, we have matching mm-hmm. rings for, you know, that many years.
1: If you hold so. the rings against each other. Something you? happens. Yeah. I don't know what yeah.
0: you summon the green yeah. lantern or something. <laughs>
2: No, it wouldn't have been anything that dorky. We'd like, you know, get better tables at Nobu or something. I don't
0: know. Well, hey, Elton, welcome to the, uh, the Eater Upsell here. Thanks for having me. So 17 years, that really is, a, you know, I know that, I kind of know the history of the Food Network a little bit, but in my mind, it also seems like Food Network's been around forever. Is that how you feel like?
2: Well, I remember when there was no Food Network. So no. Um, I mean, it, it it feels like it's been a while. Um, but I think that's true of anything that kind of works its way into the kind of the cultural well, I wouldn't say Zekeis because that's longer than that. But it's it's part of the cultural fabric. And so it seems that way because it's it's kind of like when you have a cell phone and FedEx, you can't imagine when you didn't have them, you know, so they just all, always seem to have, have been there. But
1: you also, along with, with the, I think, of inaugural class of Food Network people, were among, maybe you were the first to really popularize thinking of food and cooking as fun, scientifically-minded experimentation.
2: Well, I think Good Eats was the first show to take... A non chef food stance, and look at it as um, as storytelling from a, from a cinematographic standpoint or television standpoint, and then also to focus more on on actual scientific know how than what we'll call chefly tradition, if you will.
1: So you have a cinematography background. I did.
2: I I was a cinematographer and a commercial director for almost 10 years before I quit and went to culinary school.
1: And so much of that, I think if you go back and watch old episodes of Good Eats, which are- We prefer um, to
2: call those vintage or classic. Heirloom (laughs) varieties.
1: Heirloom Good Eats, um, which are available on Netflix and are so much fun to go back to. I
0: watched uh, Bolognese last night. Season eight.
1: I watched Pork Tenderloin and Spinach Salad.
0: Season six. You know, I gotta say, God, watching it, watching it uh, again, I kind of really think it's in, that, that show has informed a lot of sort of internet cooking, the new narrative for a lot of food TV, and that you know you pull in other elements of things, you tell a story, you maybe have some fun with the filmmaking of it instead of just like
1: you know demonstration. the stand and stir. Yeah,
2: I, I don't know much how much we've informed uh, what what has happened in in the year since, but I, I do know that the show was invented as a uh, antidote to stand and stir. My thing was, as a filmmaker, I was just bored of watching food shows. I was a hobbyist cook, and I would watch all these food shows, and I was like, oh my gosh. I I watch the first five minutes, then I wake up and it's over. This is boring. Uh, And I'm not learning anything on top of that. So the whole goal was to uh, educate while entertaining. And we used to have a sign above our studio door that said, uh, laughing brains are more absorbent. (laughs) So the whole idea being simply that if you entertain people, they will learn whatever it is
1: you're trying to teach them. So had you always considered yourself eventually on a path to being an educator?
2: No. I was just trying to look for a subject I wanted to make films about, you know, and and so I just put the the two things together. It was like, I really, really love food. I love cooking. I want to tell stories about it. And so I I just, I knew I had to find a way to put those two things together.
1: Do you think that the cinematography as it relates to, to food media has evolved since then? Have oh, people taken sure. Lead?
2: Not because of, of me or anything else, but because of technology. I mean, the technology and the phone in your pocket right now is better than what we shot season one of Good Eats on. So I, I think that that has simply opened up. Social media, digital media, and technology have, have changed what it is to be a visual storyteller.
1: Though there is still the same visual mm-hmm. vernacular for a lot of sure. those cooking demo shows.
2: Well, because in the end, you know, you're know, you covering a physical event that is is taking place. You know, it, it depends on what, what kind of point of view you're trying to get across. You know, are you really telling a story about the food? I, I think that there's still a, a lot of people that just want to kind of fetishize the food. It's, it's really just porn. It's like, oh, here come the sesame seeds, Of course, you would never say that about sesame seeds, but uh, I I still think that there's there's, somewhere somebody says that about sesame seeds. Uh, So I I think that we still, you know, we're we're still in the visual idolizing phase, idolization phase um, instead of the storytelling phase. But but that's, again, a matter more of um, the way that we um, are training your generation as I look at the two of you you, to absorb and consume media, you know, on what you're um, where you want to put your attention and where you don't want your attention.
1: I think you've brought a a similar paradigm shift to the way that cooking and food information has been presented in books, too, though. Your Good Eats books don't feel like standard cookbooks. They have a lot more going on, and they're layered, and they are multifaceted. Was that another intentional choice?
2: Sure. If I have an intentional choice with, with any form of media, especially where food is concerned, it's to attempt to reinvent... Or to break a rule, not because I'm trying to be an iconoclast, and I'm not. With well, a leather jacket uh, but, here. <laughs> but what I am trying to do is to, to shake up forms and, and kind of find the, 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 the dark little corners of any particular media form and figure out a, a new way to approach it. Um, and books are books are the the most frustrating of, of any of them because they do just sit there they're not temporal you know they, they they don't pass you know you can't cover a cut with a music cue you know it sits there and, and stares at you and you stare at it and so you've got to approach them differently okay. uh, my books have never been based on okay here's a here's a pretty picture of some food now here's the recipe for making the food but I don't do that because I don't enjoy that. I want even cookbooks to have a narrative. I want to learn something, and I want to be taken someplace. I want to be able to sit down and just read the book to read the book. And so that's how I kind of try to write books. My new book is actually as conventional a cookbook as I guess I'm capable of. It's a 100 of my everyday cooking recipes. But the book's arranged by time of day instead of meal. And every uh, recipe gets a full-page photo that's uh, shot on an iPhone. So I guess even then, I can't really just
0: do it like other people do. Why the iPhone? Why just to... to- because
2: it is the visual tool of our age, as far as I'm concerned. It, it, it's, it also, you know, it's, it's funny. It forces you... Um, every, every photo in my new book is uh, taken from directly overhead. I wanted to come up with a visual language that was more immediate. I'm making a book for the Instagram crowd, you know, and so why not use that tool? Uh, why, why use fancy cameras and fancy lenses is if I can, if I can use a tool and find a new way to take advantage of that tool and do what it's really good at, Uh, and stay away from the things that it isn't very good at, then a whole kind of new visual thing comes out of that. Um, And I like defining work sometimes by the tools instead of deciding on a style and finding the tools for it. I'll pick up a tool and say, okay, well, I'm intrigued in the tool. Let's style for it. And so the iPhone seems to be the perfect thing to do on top of the fact that nobody's ever done it. Another good reason, at least to try.
0: So when you go to a restaurant, do you always take photos of food with your phone?
2: If I... uh, if I like the meal, I tend to steal something. Oh. Yeah. I, I steal uh, check trays a great deal.
1: That's an obvious thing. Like, not, not that it's an yeah, obvious thing Yeah, I know. Steal, no, it's obvious, meaning
2: that, that it... Well, thank you very much for the bar. Um, yeah, I, I, I sometimes not take mine, though. I might steal one off another table okay. so that somebody else takes the wrap for my criminal activities. And I don't know why I do it exactly, it's, it's like I like them and I like having a souvenir of that meal and so I'll steal them and then I'll like write on the back where I stole it from and when it was and all of that. So it's it's a thing.
1: Do they vary a lot from restaurant to restaurant? Yeah, like they do.
2: Uh, people are putting a lot of attention into their check trays mm-hmm. and so, you know.
1: So it's a meaningful theft. It's a
2: meaningful theft.
1: It's not just... But like, I'll
2: even steal one that's like just a crappy old, you know, thank you plastic one as long as I can write on the back of it. I don't know why it has meaning to me.
0: Have you ever d- been busted?
2: No, I haven't been busted yet.
1: Is this one of the perks of to or happen. do you think you're genuinely stealing? No,
2: I think that they're just letting me think that... <laughs> yeah. They're letting me believe that I'm stealing, I when see. they actually know completely what I'm doing. Sure. So and do a you couple know? times, I've actually left notes, I stole your check tray. Love, Elton Brown. But they're not going to stop me, because then you know I'll, I'll tweet that I got food poisoning or something. Of
0: course. But, it's like the premise for a very um, bizarre sort of thriller, like, what do we know about the criminal? Like, well, he took... How can we track him?
1: He wrote his name on this piece of paper. He wrote his name (laughs) on this piece of paper. And he tipped
2: 40%. So leave him the hell alone and get another tray out of the storage room. I love it. Which is usually how it goes.
1: Yeah. Do you take pictures of food when you are not doing it for your cookbook?
2: I do, but not for the reasons. um, It's usually to to keep track of an idea. um, Or um, you know, in this day and age, it's a way of rewarding. If a place is doing something really well, you know, they, they want to post. They, they they want some social media love. And, and so you take photos of food in order to, to kind of dole that out. It's like an endorsement, which it really is in a lot of cases. But sometimes I just take it, uh, take photos of, of food um, just to, to remember an idea or remember, you know, don't do that, <laughs> you know, in the future. Uh, but I'm not one of those people that takes a photo of everything I eat.
1: Are you, are you the photographer for your cookbook or are you working with?
2: I'm working. Um, uh, there's kind of a, a team of us. Um, the uh, the woman that's actually my, my Dodo, Director of Digital Ops.
1: That's uh, her a name great is, uh, title.
2: Yeah, Dodo. Uh, Sarah Deheer is actually uh, pushing the button on all the photographs. She's a fantastic um, internet photographer. She did all the photography for my website, and I li- like that style so much. So I was like, please, she has a fantastic Instagram account. And uh, so I asked her to to do it. I, I didn't want to be the one actually taking the photos because I want to be the overall um, creative director on on the job. So I'm kind of a... a Attacking it the way I would a to start to uh, finish campaign.
0: Start to finish. What is the process of writing one of these books? How long does it take? And like, what's like the first step?
2: Well, this book's really different because I'm not um, slaving recipes or as I call them applications to trying to teach a particular theorem or or whatever. This is just taking a hundred of my my. This is my cooking, uh, so it's a personal the book's called Everyday Cook. And the kind of our tagline is this time it's personal because I'm not being presentational. This is my food. And that's why it's arranged morning, coffee break, noon, afternoon. It's like, here's when I eat it, you know, Um, even around till till late night. And like the last picture of the book is me laying in bed with a plate of french fries on the pillow next to me. Um,
0: (laughs) Great final meal. Yeah,
2: it is, you know, right before I go to bed, you know, um, is, is the french fries. So for a book like that, where I've already cooked most of the food, but I haven't quantified it. You know, it it exists on cocktail napkins, or um, I I have these uh, white cabinets uh, in my apartment where I actually write things with pencil on the inside of the cabinet doors. Um, That's how I keep up with what I'm what I'm cooking. So getting that converted into to workable recipes, you know, there's probably about a for only 100 recipes, maybe a three month period uh, for that. Um, and then, you know, if you're actually writing uh, as you go along, you've got to add in maybe another month to two for that. And then the photographic process, in our case, is, is long because we're, we're not just taking pictures of food, we're kind of setting up tableaus and, and doing very kind of different things in the photos. So we're only shooting about five photos a day, but every single recipe gets a photograph. So uh, that, that kind of changes the dynamic there. So I'm going to say seven months.
1: Wow. That seems, I'm say about, I'm say that seems a, a pretty speedy actually, I think, for yeah, most cookbooks. It production. is. Well, that's just to get the manuscript yeah. turned
2: in. And then I mean the book's not coming out till October of the next year because of, you know, printing and right. blah, 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 blah.
0: Sound like a publisher's dream there. <laughs>
2: oh months. no, ask my ask my publisher. Yeah, the folks at Valentine, you know, kind of shiver <laughs> when I call because <laughs> I'm a pain in the ass.
1: So are the recipes healthy? You know, I know a couple of years ago you um, were very open about being introducing a lot of regimen to your diet and lost a lot well, of weight. Well, I needed to, yeah, um,
2: and I still do. I've put on uh, – I put back about 20 of those pounds, I think. Um, that's where, that's where you, you're both supposed to say, yeah, but you look great. You look spectacular. Uh, yeah. This is it's it's a too podcast. Late now. It's too you late know? You both blew it. Um, the book's got <laughs> – it is not set up to be that. There, there are certainly recipes that are – but i didn't put them in there because they were healthy i put them in there because they freaking taste good um but i've i've learned how to use a lot of things that i used to uh, stay away from you know their are quinoa recipes for instance and i used to say who the hell wants to eat quinoa but then i came around and i'm like yeah okay um so there there is some stuff that i would call healthy and then there's some stuff that i would say if you eat every day you're going to have a heart attack before you turn 40 but you know that you got to have balance
0: so you're gearing up, if I have my facts correct, in spring, the spring, you're going to be doing another tour. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. You know, the the tour thing was really, I kind of did that as a lark when I, I put together a show a couple of years ago called the Edible Inevitable Tour. And um, we ended up playing, which was, which was a, a complete variety show. Very large, very bizarre food demonstrations, live music. I was doing some of my food songs, all kinds of stuff. And we played that in... I want to say 104 cities, 104
0: I guess. I I guess about 104, 104 cities? And four cities. I can't even list
2: 104 cities. Well, I can't either. I can only ride in a bus to them, um, but in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, then we decided to do it again in the spring. But when most people do shows like this, they only change out about 30% of the show. I can't do that. Uh, so it's 100% new. So it's a completely uh, new show. And this tour is called uh, Eat Your Science. So Alta Brown Life, Eat Your Science will uh, boot off in, uh, in April.
1: So what's it like to be on tour? I mean, is it, are you, you're doing full rock star? you're in a bus, you're sleeping in... We, 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 live,
2: we live in buses because it's the practical thing to do, you know, because you can come out of the show at the end of the night, you get in bed and you wake up in the next city. Um, it's, it's really the way to do it. It's a wonderful way to travel.
0: That sounds cool.
2: It is. Well, uh, it can be. It can also be just a real serious pain in the butt, especially depending on what time of year. If you get out of the bus and it's 20 below zero... There's just no way to not make that suck, and these are these are nice rock and roll tour buses, but it's not like we have jacuzzis
0: and you know weight rooms. Is and, your face and, on the side of the tour bus?: No,
2: I don't wrap the bus. I, I, we, we lay low. We, we may have some design elements from the show on the next bus, but, but no we don't we
1: don't do that. You're glossy black um, keeping
2: it.: We keep it no, matte black. Oh, I, 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 I want it to be almost invisible as it rolls in it.
0: as it yes. rolls through yeah. the night,
2: yeah, yeah. It does um, not appear on radar. No, actually it doesn't. It's completely stealth, stealth uh, technology. Uh, Any of the uh, flat surfaces, we we make balls of uh, black gaffers tape and stick on the outside. So it kind of looks like a giant black goiter, but nobody can see it with radar. Um, What's it like? I think that it's a new, you know. It's funny, celebrity has changed so much in this country. It used to be, you know, you're either a movie star, a sports star, a music star. There weren't, or a serial killer. I mean, there weren't. It was hard to be famous doing anything else. And so, you know, um, this you were Led Zeppelin touring in '73 and you know playing Madison Square Garden. Now there's a whole other, you know, realm which is that you know I'm playing. Mostly uh, performing arts centers, twenty five hundred to four thousand seats. Typically, we get a few five thousand seat houses, but I rarely fill them. But the people that come treat me like it's Zeppelin and seventy three. So, it's an interesting kind of kind of stardom, and it's it's fantastic if you're a performer because you're cutting out the middleman completely. You know, you are right there in front of them every night um, for, you know, however long you're on the road. I, I enjoy it a great deal. I try to get it right every day. Um, sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you don't feel like you get it right. And it's, it, it's scary. I, 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 realized that if I was going to do a variety show that I was going to have to play music because you can't do a variety show without music. And I, I had not played in a band since I was 21 years old. So it was like, get out of guitar, learn how to play again, learn how to, you know, Start writing songs and, and, and the audience. Because I thought if I start singing in front of an audience, I get a guitar and start singing, they're going to be like, what the hell is happening here? <laughs> um, but the songs are funny and they, uh, they turned out really, really, really enjoying them. So, so we're actually going to release a CD next year. Really? Whoa.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. So you did this with a band? Well, you know,
2: I did, um, I took, it was always a combo. I had a trio in the first two legs of the tour and um, another guitarist, a real guitarist and, um, and a, and a percussionist. Um, And we did them as we did the songs as pretty large production numbers. And and some of them were were pretty loud. We do a punk rock song about easy bake ovens. It was really loud. Um, But I, I slowly came to learn that the smaller, the music, if, if songs are trying to be funny, they're funnier if they're acoustic. So, in the end, I got everything knocked down to just me and acoustic guitar and a percussionist, and they were funnier because you've got less kind of sound separating you from the audience. So, we went from a more of a rock and roll style, you know, power trio uh, down to um, something more folk, rock, indie feeling. But it worked better in the end.
1: That's one of the, the sort of secret rules of comedy, right? Is that, that comedy lives in intimacy. So. It really
2: does. And when you're working a line, you know, it's like, uh, I do a song called airport shrimp cocktail, which is about getting food poisoning on an airplane and it's done as a country Western number. Of course. But yeah, of course, yeah. Cause it's a, about love gone bad. So yeah, you know, I do that. And I, and I noticed that, you know, when, when it's just acoustic and I can really hear the audience, I can change up the timing and work the timing to them. So it's really stand-up routines in a way. Um, and that's that was just something that i had to learn you know over time which is um you you don't um you can't force funny you know you can't you've got to pare it down and um so i'm not gonna make that mistake again
0: so how do you pick where you you go on these tours
2: i don't i have people that choose that you know that Mm -hmm. that's a very what we call rooting is a very complex issue that's based upon you know where you've played who wants you back what kind of deals who's promoting what and so you know my agents and my my touring company uh a bunch of folks called Magic Space Entertainment will just lay it out in front of me and say, "What do you think?" And I'll be like, "Yeah, okay." You know, after you do it a while, you're like, "Oh, I remember that theater. I'm not ever going back there." Or, "Oh yeah, we're definitely you know they had really great catering."
0: Or, you "Do know, you have like a favorite good. theater?"
2: The problem is I can't remember the name of it. Uh, um, it's in. They've got this great theater in Milwaukee. We're up on the top floor of the theater. They've actually got like a coffee shop, restaurant, and lounge with like a record player and albums and stuff like that. And it's like a really cool place to hang out. I just can't remember the name of the theater.
1: I'm That's bad about really that. Cool. But I
2: mean, there are great theaters all around the country. And then there are also just complete dumps. There any are dumps. There are
1: terrible dumps. Any big disasters? Like
2: You know, the only, you know, it's little things, you know, or things that aren't very dramatic. Um... You know, you can have miscues or you can have something that doesn't happen when it's supposed to happen. But every mistake like that, you know, it's funny. If something goes wrong and you've you've planned properly, then things are never going to go so wrong that they stop you. In the end, it's interesting. What an audience wants is something unique to them. If, if your sound system died in the middle of a show at in a 2,000-seat house and you just sit down on the stage with an acoustic guitar and do a thing anyway, that becomes the memorable event. So every disaster has a way of, of becoming something special, as long as you don't freak out, as long as you find the options. There are liabilities, I'm oh, sorry, there are assets in every liability, um, if, if, if you can find them. But, you know, we never had anything happen that was like, oh, oh, crap, do you remember that time? I mean, you know, the worst things that can happen when you're on the road is you get sick, yeah. and you still have to do the show, and you're like, oh my God, that was miserable. You know, we did a doubleheader in LA, and I had the flu, and oh, I wanted to die. But, you know, that doesn't make for very good stories, you know?
1: Was there a moment when you realized you were famous?
2: I remember the first time I got asked for an autograph. It was in, I mean, Good Eats had been on maybe three months, and it was in Atlanta where I lived, and, and I was completely taken aback by it. I hadn't thought about this will happen, because I was, you know, I was executive producer, I was writing the show, I was directing, you know, I, all this stuff. I, I was so busy doing the work that I didn't think about getting famous and there was no social media. There was barely a freaking internet in 99 to be honest. It's hard to imagine, but so it was no feedback. You know, I didn't know anything was happening, but you know, and I would get asked for an autograph, but then I remember my first book coming out and I, I remember um, showing up at the very, very first bookstore uh, for the first book signing. And there were, there were 2000 people there and it was like, Oh, Oh, and that's when it's like, okay, something's changed. Here. <laughs> and then that's kind of funny. You know, celebrities just weird. It's a weird thing, especially in this day and age, because I can be in an elevator today and with five people, and one will kind of recognize me from somewhere, but not nowhere. Um, another one will um, kind of be a fan and like my shows. Two of them will have never seen me before, and the last one will think that I'm Elvis. <laughs> I mean a fan to that level of of fanaticism. So it's just um yeah, it's odd.
0: So you've been traveling across the country for various projects, various reasons and things like this tour now for a very long time. In your experience as a food personality, as someone who works on these things, what's the big difference? How has food changed since nineteen ninety nine? In small towns, I guess I'm specifically curious. I know that's a since very no, good question. No, no.
2: Yeah, but it's a good one. And, and I'll be honest with you. It's one that I've, I've wrestled with before because you're not the first to ask, you know, what, what has happened. We've all become aware. We're hyper aware. The pickest changes since I started, I can say that we're all very, very aware because we're, we're absorbing and consuming food media. But the real game changer, when you get right down to it, for better or worse, was Starbucks. Because Starbucks is everywhere, and now we all accept paying four dollars for a coffee, everyone does now. So what happened is, then of course, anywhere that Starbucks was, you eventually got third wave coffee. So now we've got funky pour over coffee shops, you know. So we're all starting to become very sophisticated um, in our palates, you know, and, and so we're starting to value things, you know. You can look at at Starbucks whether you like it or not, and then Whole Foods, as, as being something that. Really, in you know, 1999, wouldn't have existed at the level that it does now. Um, so we're we're all extraordinarily aware. We're spending, willing to spend money on quality. What's funny though is I think that we're more sophisticated as eaters than than cooks. You know, I know people that can detect the difference between whether we've made the bouillabaisse with with you know Turkish saffron or Iranian saffron, but couldn't cook the the. The seafood in the Blue If you held a gun to their head, you know. So we've become far more uh, sophisticated as consumers, whether we have as cooks or not. I, I, I don't. I don't know.
1: That seems um, like a logical parallel to the way that f- food has evolved as part of our culture, because uh, you know I, I think it's not infrequent that food is analogized to the rise of music in the seventies and eighties. Music saturation of America was not. The creation of music. It was the consumption of music, and and that seems like the root to popular culture. You become a thing for people to purchase and identify themselves around and know things about, rather than become experts in the creation of.
2: Well, it's interesting that you would mention you know consumption because that has a lot to do also with changing business models. You know, uh, I've had conversations with people because I have interest in music about you know when when things really changed, and um, people talk a lot about. Uh, the touring year of, of 1973, which I, I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, when, uh, when when Led Zeppelin, The Who, and Alice Cooper all went out on these massive arena tours that changed the way the business of rock and roll was done. And I think that what we've done is we've gotten ourselves into a place where we've changed the way that the food business is done, very, very much so. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a good analogy. We, we are consuming at that at that level. The only real difference is is that not everybody has to consume music. Everybody does have to consume food. Or we we keel over dead,
1: right? And that's where what you were saying about Starbucks becomes really fascinating because it's yeah. it primes us to learn how to fetishize ingredients and it, foods it does. And, and it
2: also um, very much um, carves out a, a status area. You know, it's like. And what's funny is that it used to be well, oh, our town got a Starbucks, and now we talk about Starbucks like it's the the bottom of the line coffee shop. You know, but the the importance of what it did um, as, as a global model is is. Incredibly important, and now we see we're seeing that with. I see the uh, Shake Shack sticker there on your uh, on your computer, just yep. under Dolly Parton, and, a, and across from uh, what appears to be Robert Redford. About ten years ago,
1: um, I, that's the mascot of a poutine shop in Toronto, Canada. Was,
2: there's a poutine shop using Robert Redford. Does he know?
1: It's a mediocre poutine shop. I just yeah, like their sticker. Redford. Is that st- actually Robert Redford? So. Yeah, yes, I've look st-
2: at it. That's Robert Redford, right around the time of, oh, isn't it? Yeah,
0: it totally is, and it's, he's wearing um, his aviator glasses. Helen Gosh. has amazing stickers on the back of her laptop. I
1: try to put restaurant stickers on my laptop.
2: Well, what's what restaurant goes with Dolly Parton?
1: That is just the great state of Tennessee.
2: But there's nothing wrong with Tennessee. No, no, I, I just I, big I adore fan Tennessee. Of Tennessee. Matter of fact, and Dolly Parton. I, I would say that. Um, Going by, I do this, uh, when I'm on tour, I do this thing called A.B. Road Eats, which is um, um, online or a, a social media food thing that I do Is I, we ask people everywhere we go, you know, where should, you know, where should I eat and, you know, go there and then do reviews and things. And I've got to say, Memphis, Tennessee, probably my number one food town in the U.S.
0: It's a hell of a town. What hell, is it? What's what's the thing? Or what are the Gibson's
2: fricking donuts, man. Outside of Memphis proper is this donut place called Gibson's, which makes... Not just the best donut in the United States, but as far as I'm concerned, if all the other donuts went away and I still had Gibson's, I'd be okay. They've also got the best chicken and maybe the best hamburger in the United States. So Memphis, Memphis good.
1: Are the ham- the hamburger and the chicken are also at Gus's, or they're in Memphis and no, 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 or at, I mean, at Gibson's. We, I mean, so. no, no,
2: no, no. You got to you got to go with uh, with with Gus's, Gus's for 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 the chicken. I just but preempted I that. Would, I would say yeah. uh, uh, Dryer's um, on Beale Street for the burger. Yeah, uh, pretty fine stuff. But just a great, 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 great food town.
1: It is a great food town. Well, you know what we were just talking about a minute ago with with. The rise of food as consumption culture, and and Starbucks sort of leveling the playing field for loving food. Mm-hmm. You, there was a really fascinating interview with you in the New York Times a, a couple of months ago, and you said something that, like, resonated beautifully with my soul. I felt so known and understood, um, which is the interviewer was asking you about people loving food and you said that everybody loves food and people try to convince you that they should be on Next Food Network Star or they should be getting whatever job because they love food. Because they love it so much. And yeah. and you said this great line which was, at best, love is the gasoline, it's not the car. Yeah. And I think about that all the time and it feels very correct. You know, Greg and I, when we're not podcasting, we write and edit and we, we work with a lot of people who are interested in breaking into the food world mm-hmm. and that... That happens all the time, that they, they, the people who are interested in exploring food culture think that the road in is just a deep, passionate love. Yeah. And it's so much more than that.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you don't have the passion, you're probably not going to get anywhere. But the passion in and of itself is not terribly interesting. Um, and, yeah, we do see that all the time, certainly. I, I feel on, like everyone TV. Loves,
0: loves food now, and I don't know if that was the same um, as 20 years ago.
2: Or I think the... people just didn't think. You know, there was a time when people simply were thinking about how to get enough of it you know, or having to get it on the table. My grandmother, my late grandmother, who I adored, never could get her head around the idea of Food Network. She was in an episode with me um, that turned out to be one of my favorites um, ever called The Biscuit Also Rises. The Dough Also Rises. But um, she couldn't, she's like, I got to get up at you know, six o'clock every morning and make breakfast for Bob. Why? Why the hell would I want to watch that on television? Because it was a thing you did. It was a chore. It's like chopping wood or anything else. It wasn't celebrated. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, this apple butter is artisanal. It was like it's food. You know, and so I think that we were we were mostly just consumed with, with that. And then, of course, the 70s came, well, more than in the 60s, you know, post-World War II was all about convenience foods and and the the, the new style of entertaining, which was, you know, oh, well I made this out of, you know, three cans of cream and mushroom soup and some, you know, tater tots. And everybody was like really, really into that because suddenly we were in the new age of food. And then, you know, we, we collapsed back down and now we're, we're, we're growing back out into this kind of global thing. But nobody... People didn't talk about it. He didn't talk about it. He said, you know, damn it, Helen makes a fine casserole. And that was it. But then also remember that women cooked, by and large, unless they were French guys, and then they had tall hats and yelled at people. But it wasn't a point of discussion. It wasn't something that we sat around and did together.
1: But now everybody loves food, and, and there has to be more. So what is the more, do you think? I mean, what, what is it that will catapult someone from an enthusiast to a professional?
2: Well, there's so many different ways to be a professional, but in the end, I think it all comes down to a unique point of view, whether you're writing a blog, you're doing a show, opening a restaurant, running a farm, it kind of comes down into what makes you different from everybody else. We're in the, the age of, um, of uniqueness, you know, because we've got so much that now it's just a matter of how do I separate myself? Yes, quality has to be there, but story narrative has become as important as product. So it's not just, do I make good bacon? It's what's the story of my bacon? Narrative is king.
0: That's very exciting to hear you say that because I guess I've kind of thought about that in various ways to see how kind of food media has evolved a little bit. And like one thing I've been kind of bemoaning is the is the fact that everyone, the people that used to write blogs, like I love strange personal food blogs. And there are so many less of them now because I think people are channeling that energy into Instagram. Oh, that's which interesting. Which is just like the photo instead of like, you know, I'm going to take a photo of my food, go back to my apartment and write, you know, 500 words on it. It's like, I'm just going to put it on Instagram. Here's what I ate. But that doesn't tell the same story. No. You know?
2: Well, we, we're, we're slowly forgetting how to read. Yeah. In general, uh, which I worry about. And therefore writing is not as valued as, as it once was. And, and, point of view and discovering something through people's words is not as important as discovering it through their Instagram account, you know, and, and when I, I, I understand Instagram, I appreciate Instagram, I Instagram, but I, but I, I know people where it's like, you can, you can go into their Instagram accounts and you're like, okay, this is 5,000 pictures of food. In the end, I don't know that I want to look at 5,000 pictures of food because in, eventually they're all going to kind of start looking the same to me. Um, I rather see some other things, you know, there is life food is part of life. It is not actually life, <laughs> you know, it, it's still just one part of life. And and I think that it's a lot more interest. Food's a lot more interesting when we see where it actually does plug into the other things you can't eat.
1: So you actually tweet primarily in pictures which is an interesting spin Almost exclusively. Spin on this. Almost exclusively. And they're pictures of text yes. for... for um, post-it notes. Which is great, right? So so Alton has this style. I don't know, Greg, if you're as obsessive oh, about this no, as it's I am. Great. But it's, it's so terrific where you will respond to people's tweets by writing a message or drawing a picture on a post-it note, sticking it to your computer monitor, taking a photograph of it, and tweeting that image along with and a relevant hashtag. Yeah. And... That occupies an interesting middle ground because it's text, but it's a picture of text. So in a way, for those consumers of Twitter, which is a primarily text-based medium, who are just scrolling looking for the photos, you'll pop out and you're tricking them into reading words.
2: I didn't mean to do that. It was just not wanting to constrain myself to 140 characters. And I wanted to be able to draw. I wanted to be able to do—I'm a visual person. So I chose a canvas, which was a, a square yellow Post-it note. I never use color unless something's really wrong. You see me start tweeting on blue, call the police, because it <laughs> means I'm being held hostage. Um, and then it, that just became my language. That just became, it's what I do. And, and it allowed me also, if I'm a... Replying to someone allows me to share that communication with a larger audience. What I didn't realize I was doing at the time was that I was like doubling, tripling, quadrupling the click-throughs that I was getting on traffic because of people looking. If somebody wanted to know if I answered them, they had to look at everything. Right. And they had to click on everything, which hugely changed my trajectory in social media. But I had no idea I was doing that.
0: Very good strat.
2: I didn't know it was – it wasn't a strat. It wasn't. I mean, it, it, it was just, completely just a fluke. It was just stumbling onto a way of doing something.
1: Accidental brilliance.
2: Um, if it's accidental, is it brilliance? I, I don't... That's a really good point. I don't know. I accidental
1: mean, I, thing that could be perceived as brilliant if you decided to take intentional credit, take for, credit it. for it. Just take Happy accident. Happy it was, accident. was a happy accident. Yeah.
2: And And the thing is, I used to say, I'm not ever going to do social media. I hate social media. I hate the idea of it, blah, blah, blah. And then when I discovered that one thing, that you could be... Mm-hmm. That I could find a way to express myself as an individual... Then it was like, "Oh. Oh, well this is this is actually kind of fun and, you know, now I've got 1.75 million followers, I guess or but something who's like counting? that." Well, you know what I don't actually count because you can't <laughs> um, you know, people get fascinated by by those metrics, uh, but in the end I I'm 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 far more interested in simply being able to have um, a communication with with fans, which by the way is something that's completely new in our generation. You know, I mean, once upon a time, um, famous people got bags of of mail, you know, and dictated, uh, you know, return letters through secretaries and and they went out and that was personal and lovely. And maybe you get one and maybe you wouldn't. But now on a day to day basis, there's the status of look who look who answered me, you know, and all of a sudden I start getting followers because such and such answered me or got, you know, somebody famous follows me. Then now I'm really in. So it's an interesting dynamic. It's it's currency. It's just like money now.
1: Do you feel like you have a sense of a certain monolith that your fans are? like? Do they seem like they're one type of person or one type of voice that they interact with you?
2: Cooking is an incredibly intimate thing to do for people. You know, there's... Yeah, sex is intimate, but in a way also completely non-intimate, depending on how you approach it. Um, Laughter, comedy, very personal. Food, very personal. So when you see... Uh, it's like if, if we all watch the same comedian and then met him on the street, we would assume we know we knew him or her because the intimacy of comedy. Well, the same thing happens with with food. If you cook on TV enough and people watch you, they assume a level of of uh, of intimacy that that may not you know actually exist. So um, when you do what I do for a living, everybody that communicates with you communicates with you as a known member of the family, which defines my communications really with people on social, as is true of almost anybody that touches food um, in, in mainstream media. Um, what's interesting about mine is that I have two very, very specific camps of people. I have Cutthroat Kitchen fans, and I have Good Eats fans. And they do not always meet. A matter of fact, there's only about a 20% kind of uh, crossover uh, between them. Um, and so I, I find myself really having to, to communicate two different sides of myself to to those two different groups.
1: How do they differ?
2: Uh, you know, not all Good Eats fans like Cutthroat Kitchen, and a lot of Cutthroat Kitchen fans don't like Good Eats, or simply weren't around when it was on prime time. Um, you know, I, I see tweets every day, or you know, things on Facebook of oh, I discovered the show called Good Eats on Netflix. It's kind of like, wow, you mean John Lennon was in a group before Yoko Ono? <laughs> um, not, not, please, not saying I'm the Beatles. Okay. But you know, you, you realize, Oh, well there are people that when enough years have gone by, it's like, wow, you get that, how how that can happen. So, um, good, good dilemma to have, you know, uh, being able to, to touch different generations with different kinds of things. My absolute (laughs) rule with, with social media and with communicating to these people is everything's got to be absolutely authentic. Um, I do it. That's me. Yes. I have help. Uh, my dodo, as I mentioned, you know, schedules, because I might say, oh gee, I'm going to Facebook this at seven in the morning. She's like, what are you a moron? No, your people are on it. Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, I give it to her and she does it, but uh, you have to be authentic and it has to be a real voice. You know, I don't take money for doing it. Um, it's an honest line of, of communication, but, but also vital because I, I know what, what my fans are thinking and doing and cooking and, uh, what's going on in their kind of collective life, which is good.
1: Do they, to the Cutthroat Kitchen fans in particular, I would imagine have a really interesting relationship to you because you are the consistent element on that show. Mm-hmm. And Cutthroat Kitchen is very unlike other cooking shows. Um, there is cooking. D-
2: designed for that, for that cause. Yes. <laughs>
1: well, there is actual cooking that happens on it. But the really fascinating thing for me, at least when I watch it, is that it is an extraordinarily complex multi-component strategy game.
2: It's a game. It is a game show. And the reason that Cutthroat is different from the kind of world of culinary competition shows is that culinary competition shows are based on, all right, we're going to make you jump through this hoop. You're going to cook this food. Somebody's going to eat the food, and then somebody's going to go home. You can't win that way on Cutthroat Kitchen. You must play the game. So it is a, a true game show. And, yes, there is cooking. But above all, like you say, there's strategy. The Cutthroat Kitchen is won or lost in the pantry when you're shopping during the bidding for the sabotages, how you dole out the sabotages, and then ultimately, finally, how you bet on yourself. In other words, okay, you, you, Helen, is going to buy a, a skillet shaped like a hashtag, and I know she's going to spend X amount of money on it. Am I willing to take it, or am I? do I really need to spend money not to get it? I'm going to bet on myself. You know what? I can do that. I can use that thing. And so now I'm going to bet on myself by making you spend that money that's when things get really interesting it's 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 not what sabotages people put on each other it's which ones they're willing to take themselves
0: I,
1: and
2: that's that's fun
1: it's really fun i mean i think that what particularly appeals to my nerd brain is that there are lots of different paths lead you to strategic victory you can play to win or you can play to make other people lose Mm -hmm. or you can play to not lose yourself and and there are a lot of different paths and a lot of my friends who are also cutthroat kitchen fans are not people who watch any other food tv and it's a really terrific point of entry i think for them to start understanding that food is that cooking is a skill and that there are elements and it's difficult, but it's beautiful and it's intimate.
2: Well, and, and in the end, Cutthroat Kitchen is problem solving. You know, I mean, you're going to have to put up with something. And isn't that kind of like cooking in regular life? I mean, how often, oh, my gosh, I've got to make X and I didn't bring any flour. Crap, what am I going to do? It's interesting that you mentioned the, the kind of the multi-level strategy of how you could possibly win. It was beautifully uh, done. We're, we're in the middle of an all-star tournament and, and watching it comes on Wednesdays and watching last week is I can't, I can't remember who the chefs were anymore but the main thing that they realized is that Duff Goldman was in the competition and like under no circumstances can he survive to the final round because if he survives the final round he's going to kick everybody's ass because it's going to be dessert and he's a baker so it wasn't about I want to win and you want it was kind of like you and me Helen ganging up okay Greg has to go. <laughs> you got go. So we, you and I, and then we will be on a level playing field. One of us will win. One of us will lose. But above all, he's got to go, uh, and that doesn't happen very often. Uh, but I, I just loved watching that because it changed the entire dynamic of the of the match.
1: Just watching them slowly realize that
2: well, had to be done. Yeah. what has to be done? Which in this case, the enemy of my enemy is my friend.
1: Exactly. Until the next round, when he until the next round, and then and then,
2: and then he's my enemy again. But for right now. We need to team up.
1: And there's something so deeply gratifying about watching people awaken to strategic thinking. Um, You know, watching the contestants on the show realize that. It's like watching someone solve a puzzle. Well,
2: it's interesting. Somebody told me uh, not too long ago that they liked Cutthroat Kitchen for the same reasons they liked Game of Thrones. Because in the end, it was all about strategy. It was all positioning. It was all play, you know, uh, in one case, long story arcs for power and in the other short story arcs for some money.
1: Do you still have fun shooting it? I mean, is it just like, is? it looks like it's a, a blast.
2: Um, some days it's a whole lot of fun. Uh, when unexpected things, when we have really great sabotages, it's a lot of fun. Um, The days that it isn't fun is when I sometimes get uh, tired and frustrated with the level of skill that some people that call themselves chefs have, and it makes me want to pull my hair out, or better yet, take their knives away or something. I don't know, because I I do get sometimes frustrated. It's like, you you shouldn't be here. (laughs) I hate hate to say it that way, but it's kind of like, wouldn't this be a whole lot more fun if you were experienced enough to know that without this flower over here, you could have reached over here and done this? And every now and then I'll even be like, please let me, I'll, I'll be talking to the producers, please let me just go in and do one thing, please. I can change the whole Dynamic. but then if I do that I have to do it for two other you know the other people as well and so I end up just knocking my head up against the that wall that comes
0: or, out of it sounds like an appreciation uh, for the game and the craft there
2: yeah but it's it's, it's kind of like I want better better players yeah. you know so it's we're always just looking for better players because you know they're good cooks but crappy players and a lot of times on that show the the worst cooks have won Because they could play, and they were willing to play, and they knew they weren't going to get by on their food. Sometimes the best chefs walk in and they're like, "I'm a great chef. I'm going to win this game because I'm going to make mazapán." Bla la la la. And then they're out in the third round. They're like, "What the hell just happened?" You know. (laughs) Sorry, I automatically use a French accent for that. I shouldn't.
1: All all the least sympathetic chefs are French. I think we we can. Well, no, it's just it's
2: it's it's you know I was trained by people (laughs) that yelled at me in French, Um, but then you know they also taught me how to eat food and love food and a lot of other things. But it's just a you know it's a.
1: It's an icon. So how do you feel about restaurants these days?
2: More great restaurants in this country than there ever have been before. And it's more challenging than ever before because the customers know what they're freaking doing. You know, I mean, America is full of fantastically well-trained eaters now. We know what's going on. You know, I, I know seventh graders that can, can look up and say, that's not an aioli. That's mayo with garlic in it. What are you trying to pull here? I mean, it's a rough room you know? Um, and I think that we're, we're moving more and more to, to really thinking about our food as we eat and really tasting our food. We're not just chugging it down the way we used to. Um, and even for things like, as I look at the Shake Shack thing on, on your computer, you know, it's like, we're, we're even paying real attention to the flavor and quality of foods that used to just be, I'm going to eat that in the car, you know? Um, and so I think it's really, really rough, um, to be in, in a restaurant. I, I, I'm really glad I did my time on the line. I, I hope not to ever again. Um, I wouldn't own and cook in a restaurant if you put a gun to my head. It's, it's too freaking hard. It's just too hard. There, I would maybe do other things in food, but but that job, that's for crazy people. Crazy and love people, people that really, really want to do it. And the folks that can do it night after night and do it well, oh my gosh. It, you know, to consistently run a great restaurant is absolutely one of the most miraculous tricks, um, because it means you've got to be a great manager, you've got to be really good at your job, you've got to be good at money, you've got to be good at marketing. There's a reason that restaurants fail as often as they do, it's because it's the hardest job on earth.
0: Well, we have come to the time in the show that we like to call the lightning round. Uh Uh-oh.
1: Dun-dun-dun. Nah.
0: Yeah, this is, is going to so I'm
2: typically not good with lightning rounds but you know I'll we can I'll give go my with a best. slower you can kind of a yeah well what's slower than lightning but cheetah?
1: faster than cheetah cheetah go the cheetah, round. Let's go with cheetah
2: the round cheetah
0: round cheetah round sounds good the, the I'll, I'll
2: i'll try the cheetah round okay yeah. i'll Let's take the cheetah shoot. round for 100 all
1: That's right cool. So we're just going to ask you a bunch of questions. Say whatever you want to say. doesn't even have to be relevant to the words that come out of our mouths.
0: Perfect. So question number one, it, cheat around, question number one is uh, you're at an airport. You got an hour and a half to kill. You have money in your wallet. What do you do? What's, what's, what's the thing you do?
2: Um, leave the airport. Unless I'm at very, very few airports, I'm going to leave the airport and, and try to find something nearby. I might just get in a cab and say, where should we eat? I need to be there in 15 minutes.
1: Plot twist. The security line is really long, and you can't go back out through security.
2: Holy crap. Um, fine. Then I'm going to the airline club and, uh, and, and hiding.
1: I think that's probably actually a very smart move. Anyway, <laughs> if you walk into a bar you've never been to before... What is the drink that you order?
2: An old-fashioned.
1: Any specific requests?
2: No. Just tell them to make one and watch how they do it. Because it, it involves several, several different skills, most of them ignored.
0: I feel like maybe 12% of the bartenders in Manhattan know how to make a good old-fashioned.
2: There are a lot of really, really good bartenders here. The problem is is that most of them call themselves mixologists.
1: That's a difficult word, and that
2: becomes sometimes a problem. <laughs> yes.
1: What if you walk into the bar in heaven, and you know they are going to make you the best version of whatever drink it is that you order? What do you get then? Wow,
2: there's a bar in heaven. There is. Or heaven's a bar.
0: There's many bars actually. Multi. So it's a yeah. multiplex bar. They have one that opens pretty early, and then it's it's kind of more of a lounge. But you know what? I think I would I would first just ask for ask for a martini. I would go for a martini
2: first because how they're going to make that martini would tell me how my my time in heaven is going to go.
1: I like that you're applying strategy. Do they validate to both parking? They do. Okay. Of course it's heaven. Yeah.
0: You can never film. get too drunk in
1: heaven either. Well, I'm also setting you up with this question because I recall several years ago I interviewed you interviewed you for a different story and you told me You that interviewed it, me on the phone. I did. I did. It was a phone interview and it was really fun. And you were drinking a drink while we were talking on the phone that I have gone on to make for myself many times that you called Brown's Bitter Truth. Yeah. Do you still make that?
2: I do, but I, because I, I, I'm obsessed with bitters, and as more and more great bitters come onto the marketplace, I, I change it up a lot. But yeah, I still do make it. How do you, how do you make it? We talked about we this. We did. So, I had just come up with that drink at the time. I
1: think. <laughs> really, This yeah. was like 2010. This was a yeah. really long time ago. Yeah. So it's kind of Manhattan-ish. Right? It is. So the way that I, I now make it, which I'm sure has deviated from your original, is equal parts bourbon, Campari, and vermouth. And a lot of bitters and usually an orange twist.
2: I mean, it's really close to a Boulevardier. Yeah, but not quite. Right. It's not quite a Boulevardier because of the, uh, the vermouth.
0: Yeah. yeah. All but- right. So next cheat around question. <laughs> you are, uh, on a solo road trip. Uh, you're rolling down the highway. You're blasting some music, maybe singing along to it. What is it?
2: ELO. I don't know why that was the first thing that came to my mind.
1: Which album or which song?
2: Ooh. It's one of the
0: greatest bands of the 70s. There's no question.
2: I'm going to go with, for some reason, uh, what am I driving? Anything?
1: You're driving a
0: Honda Civic from 1987.
2: No, no, I'm not, because I never would do that. You're driving Um, a 68 Dodge No, I'm I'm driving. I have a 1971 (laughs) BMW 2001 uh, manual, so I'm listening to Mr. Blue Sky.
1: All right. Yes, you are. That's really good. So if you were not Alton Brown, multi-hyphenate producer of every facet of food culture, what would you be doing with your life?
2: Meaning, I'm still me. I just can't have the job I'm doing now. Exactly. Um, can I? Can I? Can I apply for for skills that I'm not 100 percent sure that I actually possess?
1: Absolutely. Okay.
2: Um, I would probably be a painter. Um,
1: art or house?
2: Art. Um, I'm a pilot, so I could say I'd be a professional pilot. But in the end, I actually don't know that I would want to be a professional pilot all the time. Um, so I'll I'll go with with painter. Do you paint? I really suck.
1: But you're a good drawer. No, I'm actually a
2: really bad drawer. It's just I'm really good at doing things really fast (laughs) for putting it on Post-it notes. (laughs) But uh, if I have time and somebody one day tells me, you can actually take up something, then then I would paint.
0: Wow.
1: That's very inspiring. I like that. uh,
0: and That's all the questions we have for you today. Thank Fantastic. you so much for coming by the Eater Upsell Studio.
2: Glad to be here.
1: It was such a pleasure. Yeah, I'm yeah. still
2: really wanting to know why a poutine joint has Robert Redford's face on a sticker.
1: I really would like to know as well. I picked yeah. it up because they just had these giant stickers by the register, and it's a seven-inch high weird sticker of a face that's the logo of the poutine. It could movie. also be
0: 2014-2015 Brad Pitt trying to act like... Um, he, he looks a lot like Robert Redford mm, now.
1: I'm going Redford on this.
2: Yeah, I'm yeah. going Redford too. Okay. Yeah,
1: I'm with I'm Elton.
0: Fair enough. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks for coming by. Thank you. That
0: was it for Season 1 of The Eater Upsell. Thank you for listening. It was a lot of fun for us. Season 2 will be coming out next spring with all new amazing guests. To make sure you get that season when it starts, please subscribe to The Eater Upsell. And as always... If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. It's the best way to let us know that you're out there listening.
1: And as always, you can visit Eater.com, where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The
0: Eater upsells recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone.
1: Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bucamo, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Klute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito.